You may now be seated. <clears throat> I'm not even sure how many people pay attention to the local news these days, but I'll uh, start with this. In 2021, Portland's KGW8 published a news report about the death of a 49-year-old woman named Catherine Boone. The story hit the news, it seems, about a year and a half after she died. Kathy, as she was known, grew up in Portland. At the time of her death, she was homeless, living on the streets of Astoria. The news report reads in part that on January 13th, 2020, Kathy had breathing problems while staying at the Astoria Warming Shelter. An ambulance rushed her to St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland, where she later died. What made the story newsworthy was the fact that a couple of years earlier, Kathy had inherited $880,000 from her mother. It's not clear, the news report went on to say it, if Kathy ever knew the money was hers or if she understood how to get it. And those who knew Kathy and those who reported on this story all agreed that what happened was tragic. That was the word they used several times in these reports, and I think that's a fair assessment. With her inheritance, Kathy might not have been living on the streets in the middle of winter. She may have gotten better health care, and she may have lived into her 70s or 80s. It's impossible to say. So yes, in many ways, what happened was a tragedy. But a greater tragedy, I believe, are the masses of Christians who wake up day after day and go about their lives as if they had no spiritual resources at their disposal and no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They are filthy rich, but they live like spiritual paupers. That's a tragedy. And worse yet are those who truly have no share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And like you and I once were, they are separated from Christ and they have no hope and they are without God in the world. That's a tragedy. And that's the subject of this morning's message, living in light of your inheritance. So open your Bibles to the text we just read, Colossians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, we'll do a quick recap. Paul and Timothy wrote this letter to the believers in Colossae. They greeted the church and then gave them a prayer report. That's language we're starting to use here at Living Water. In verses 3 through 8, they reported their thankfulness to God for the fruit that the gospel was producing among the Colossians. And then in verses 9 through 14, they reported their petition what they asked of God on behalf of these new believers. This petition is described in six verses, but it's a single request, and you can break it down like this. There is one petition, one purpose, and just so we don't ruin the alliteration, there are four participles. The petition is in verse 9. The thing they asked of God was that these believers might be filled with the knowledge of his will. That is, they ask for a spirit-imparted understanding 
and a spirit-empowered application of their understanding of the will of God, what he desired and what he required of them. The purpose or the reason they wanted the Colossians to be filled, verse 10, was so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The four participles then, which Josh preached on last week, describe that kind of walk. The life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord is, one, a life that's bearing fruit, verse 10. Two, it's a life that's increasing in the knowledge of God. It's also in verse 10. Three, it is a life that's being strengthened by God, verse 11. And number four, it is a life that's giving thanks to God. That's in verses 12 through 14. And that's where we'll camp out this morning as we wrap up our seven-week journey through this prayer report and prepare to move into the body of the letter. Let's start with verse 12. A life that's giving thanks. Two things about this mark. First, and I think Josh mentioned this last week, remember, this is a prayer. It's not a command to give thanks, though commands to give thanks are found all over the scriptures. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, Psalm 92. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Ephesians 5. And as we'll see later in the same letter, Paul also will instruct the Colossians to give thanks. And whatever you do, he wrote to them, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's chapter 3, verse 17. So giving thanks to God is not optional for the Christian. And even though this is not a direct command, it should cause us to check our hearts. If the giving of thanks is descriptive of a life that is fully pleasing to Christ, then what does my life look like? What is the disposition or attitude of my heart? And is it marked by thanksgiving or is it marked by ingratitude? And number two, the reason I said that this mark should cause us to examine our hearts is because this expression of gratitude, this giving of thanks at its core is a matter of the heart. It's not merely the words that come out of our mouth. And every kid in this room knows what I mean. You unwrap that present from grandma. And inside the box, you find school supplies. Yellow number two pencils, three by five cards, and a giant pink eraser. And what does your mom tell you? Say thank you to grandma, right? And those are important words, so do what your mom says, but that is not gratitude. You see, mom can make you say thank you, but she cannot make you feel gratitude in your heart for school supplies when you wanted a doll or an Xbox. True thanksgiving is a matter of the heart. So while this morning's text is not a command, it is a description of what springs from the heart of the saint who's living in a manner worthy of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, check your hearts. Continuing in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. 
Who then is the one to whom this expression of gratitude is expressed? It is directed to God, the Father. That's exactly how Paul and Timothy launched this prayer in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. They didn't praise the Colossians for the love they had for all the saints, though that was commendable. They thanked God, the author of the gospel that was bearing fruit in their lives. And what motivated the Colossians to giving thanks? Verse 12, it was because the Father had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Most Christians have little or no sense of what their inheritance really is. And what notions they have usually has little impact upon their daily lives. It is no wonder then that so few are living in a manner worthy of the Lord and bubbling over with thanksgiving to the Father for their inheritance. They don't even know what their inheritance is. Let me say this before we launch into a weak attempt to tell you what that inheritance is. The past few days, I have found this topic absolutely overwhelming. So I will do the best I can in a 40-minute message, but I think all I can do is scratch the surface of the glorious riches of our inheritance in Christ. Let's give it a try. What is this inheritance and how might we live in light of it? When we use that word inheritance, we usually think of coming into or taking possession of something as a right of birth. That's similar to how it's used in the New Testament, though the emphasis in the New Testament is more on the sovereign allocation of something rather than the inherent or natural right to it. The idea is rooted in the Old Testament understanding that God exercises sovereign control over history. It was God who led Israel into the promised land. The land was his, and he granted to Israel a share or an inheritance of it. And when Israel took possession of it, portions were allotted to each tribe according to their size, as God had so determined. And similar to the New Testament we find that the idea of inheritance is also a portion allotted to someone. And just like the Old Testament, this allotment was sovereignly granted by God. We also see the idea of sonship starting to take a more prominent role in the New Testament. So as a definition, that might be helpful somewhat. But what exactly is this inheritance? Let's, let's put some flesh on these bones And ask the question, what is the portion or share that God gives to the saints? And that's a tough question. There's really no way to answer it succinctly. The idea of inheritance of the saints is put forth in Scripture like a diamond with dozens of facets, all of them brilliant, and each contributing to the beauty of the whole. So brace yourself. We're headed right to the Scriptures. There are going to be a lot of them. And each one of these points could be a sermon or a book. Let's start with the general. The best verse I can think of is 1 Peter 1.4. The apostle Peter took this glorious truth of our inheritance and he used it to give comfort to persecuted Christians. 
He told them that God had caused them to be born again to an inheritance. And listen to the four words he used to describe their inheritance. Their inheritance is imperishable. It is not subject to death, decay, or destruction. It will endure because it cannot be extinguished. In a word, it is eternal. Their inheritance is undefiled. It is pure, unpolluted, untainted, and unstained by evil. Three, their inheritance is unfading. Its pristine quality will never diminish. And unlike the flowers you bought your wife last week for Valentine's Day, this inheritance will never wither and will never, never decay. And for this inheritance is kept in heaven for them. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Their inheritance is certain and secure. So are you being persecuted? Peter says, take comfort and live in the light of your inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. What a comfort to those persecuted believers who had been dispersed all over Asia. As we move from the general to the specific, take note that the inheritance of the saints involves all that was symbolized by the Old Testament promise of a promised land, and even more. Let me show you seven facets of this gem. Number one, saints inherit not merely a country for their possession, but a new heaven and a new earth. This is probably the most well-known facet of this gem. King David saw it and wrote about it in Psalm 37, but the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. If that sounded familiar to you, it's because Jesus quoted it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's his third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, he said, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5. Saints then, and this is according to Peter, are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God when he will fulfill his promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Number two, salvation is the inheritance of the saints. The author of Hebrews says it in exactly those words. Speaking of the angels, he wrote, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those, that is the saints, who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews 1 Number three, eternal life is the inheritance of the saints. And those are the words of Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, Matthew 19. And here's a fascinating reference that I just couldn't pass by. Again, it's a reference to the inheritance of eternal life. This now is the Apostle Peter. Listen to him in 1 Peter 3, 7. He's speaking to husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And why? 
because or since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, your bride is an heir with you of the grace of life. She is an heir of eternal life. She is your spiritual equal. And her standing before her creator as an inheritor of the grace of life brings with it such dignity that it demands honor and respect from you. Eternal life is the inheritance of the saints. Number four, the kingdom of God is the inheritance of the saints. We see this everywhere in the New Testament, and many times it is stated in the negative. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6. And of course, there's the famous passage of the sheep and the goats at the final judgment. And here it's stated positively. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25. Number five, glorification is the inheritance of the saints. Paul wrote this to the Romans. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8. Number six. The inheritance of the saints also includes the promises. And if we were to dip our toes into that pool, it would require a whole series of sermons. One verse. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, those are the saints, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the saints inherit the earth. The saints inherit salvation and eternal life and glory and the promises. And the final facet of this gem, and I believe the facet that sums up all the others, is that the saints inherit the Lord. If you remember nothing else about your inheritance this morning, remember this. The Lord himself is the inheritance of the saints. And to wrap our brains around that, we need to travel back in time and see it come to life in the Old Testament. This is a beautiful, beautiful story. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, hundreds of years of slavery. And he led them through the wilderness to a land of promise. And once they took possession of the land, it was distributed among the tribes. This was their inheritance from the Lord. It was their portion. But even before they took possession of their physical inheritance, they were given clues that there were far more, that there was far more to this inheritance than mere property and prosperity. In the wilderness, God commanded that the tribe of Levi, the priestly clan, was not to be given an inheritance of the land because the Lord was to be their portion. 
and their inheritance. Deuteronomy 18. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among the brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So the Levites were to receive no land. Rather, they were to experience the fuller inheritance to which all of the land and the prosperity pointed. They were granted the privilege of serving in the presence of the Lord. I am your portion, God said to Aaron. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And this was not limited to the tribe of Levi. Again, there's clues to this all throughout the Old Testament, and you see them as far back as their wilderness wandering. Here's what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. Israel shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see what that's foreshadowing. Of course, we get to the fulfillment of that promise in the New Testament, and we see the greater fulfillment of it, but there it was in seed form. The apostle Peter explained it in full. He said that the saints are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's the rescue and the transfer into the promised land. Again, we see it again in the opening chapter of Revelation. John connects three ideas. Freedom from slavery, the cross, and a kingdom of priests. To him, and he's talking about Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's Revelations 1, 5, and 6. King David saw this. He knew it was a spiritual aspect of his inheritance. We see, for example, in Psalm 16, that though David be deprived of Israel's physical inheritance, which many times in his life he faced, he experiences fullness of joy and everlasting pleasure in the presence of God. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion. There's that inheritance language. And my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All else be lost. My portion is beautiful. And how can that be? Verse 11, because you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He expressed the same thought in, in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And here's that inheritance language. And my portion forever. Don't let it escape you. That inheritance is eternal. It is our portion forever. And the prophet Jeremiah saw the same thing. Lamentations 3.24 is a precious verse. It takes the same truth and it brings it down to earth. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. 
therefore I will hope in him. That's what it looks like to live in the light of your inheritance. It is to recognize and embrace with my whole being that my God is my portion. And if that be true, oh, I have a great hope. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the down payment of this inheritance. Paul said that he was the guarantee of our certain possession of it in full. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. You were certified with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. Some of your translations will say down payment. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of God's glory. You see there both the present and the future facets of this gem. The already and the not yet, as it's called. The saints then inherit a new heaven and a new earth. They inherit salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God and glory and all the promises and the Lord himself. He is their inheritance. Oh, that we might have eyes, the eyes of our heart enlightened, and that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And that the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And all I can say is that if the reality of that inheritance does not stir your heart to thanksgiving to the Father, then something is terribly wrong with us. Let's go back to our text. The question was this. What was the motive for giving thanks? Answer, they gave thanks to the Father because he had qualified them to share in this glorious inheritance of the saints. That word qualified is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, and it means to cause to be adequate or to fit for something or to make meat, to make suitable, as the King James put it. Obtaining this inheritance is something for which we must be fitted or qualified for. And the Father is the one who does that. It is a work of grace. It is something done to us and for us by the Father. It is not something that we do. And we'll see this idea of being qualified surface later. When we get to chapter 2 in verse 18, where Paul warns the Colossians not to let anyone disqualify them by insisting on adding things to the truth of the gospel, like asceticism and the worship of angels. But it makes you wonder, what were the Colossians like before the Father qualified them? Well, they were fitted, and they were fitted perfectly, just like you and I, for one thing, the wrath of the Almighty. You see, they were enslaved to the evil powers of darkness. They lived in rebellion against the kingdom of Christ. They were dead in their sins. Their life, unlike this walk that's worthy of the Lord, followed the path of this world. And like the rest of the human race, they were qualified for nothing less than the wrath of God. That's directly from Ephesians chapter 2. 
And yet Paul and Timothy recognized that the Father of glory had called and fitted them for something very different, for the hope of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And verses 13 and 14 tell us how the Father qualified them. Negatively, verse 13 He has delivered them from the domain of darkness. And positively, he transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom they had redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. What a beautiful way of capturing what Jesus accomplished for them on the cross. The word used here for deliver means to rescue The Jewish believers among these Colossians would have immediately recognized this language. The rescue from the power and authority of darkness was a deliverance from a far greater slavery than what their forefathers had experienced under Pharaoh in Egypt. This rescue accomplished at the cross and was accomplished at the cross and applied at the very moment they put their faith in Christ and became a new creation. John MacArthur made this connection. Our Lord used the same phrase, the dominion of darkness, to refer to the supernatural forces of Satan marshaled against him at his arrest. He's referring to Luke chapter 22. The triumph of the domain of darkness was short-lived, however. A few hours later, Jesus forever shattered Satan's power by his death on the cross. You need not fear that power, For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Through his death, Jesus crushed Satan and delivered us from his dark kingdom. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the New Testament word for buying back a slave or a captive. It is setting them free by paying a ransom. To say that, a saint, that saints have redemption is to say that they have been liberated from slavery and their redemption is their forgiveness of sins. In Christ, wrote Paul, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. As far as the east is from the west, Said King David, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The Puritan Thomas Watson, I had to add a Puritan here. Thomas Watson said that redemption by Jesus Christ is the morrow and the quintessence of the gospel. In this, all a Christian's comfort lies. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where these high-level doctrines meet everyday life. All a Christian's comfort lies in the doctrine of redemption. Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, there was the shedding of blood. Redemption by the blood of Christ is the very foundation of our qualification to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. At the beginning of this message, I said that it was a tragedy that so many Christians 
wake up day after day and go about their lives as if they had no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They behave like spiritual paupers. So let me leave you then with some practical examples. Several I've already mentioned. These are examples of what it might look like this week for you to walk in light of that glorious inheritance. I mentioned the first one earlier. The saint who sets his sights on his inheritance can lose everything because he has hope. Living in the light of your inheritance kindles hope within you. The saint can lose sons and daughters and servants and livestock and have their bodies covered with boils. And they will say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The weeping prophet Jeremiah came to the same conclusion. And this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. If you struggle with your inheritance or living in light of it, memorize this passage. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Number two, living in light of our inheritance motivates us to joyfully endure suffering. That's Crazy as far as the world is concerned. No one does that. The author of Hebrews made that connection. And it's a lengthy passage, but it's worth paying close attention to. He wrote, recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, how in the world is that possible? Because you're a Christian, they break into your garage and they steal all your tools. They break into your house and they take everything just because you're a Christian. How in the world is that possible? Because or since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Your inheritance is better than life itself and it is going to last forever. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, that's the key there. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Number three, living in light of our inheritance frees us to take radical risks for Jesus. When we recognize and embrace with our whole being that our all-knowing, 
all-powerful, everywhere present, loving Father is our portion, we have nothing to fear. We can risk it all. Jesus promised everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Saints are willing to give up everything if it means gaining Christ because he is our inheritance and he is infinitely worth it. This is why Christians go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel with people who have never heard. Their inheritance is infinitely worth the risk. And what is death to a saint but a promotion, but a gaining of our full inheritance? To depart and be with Christ, said Paul, is far better. A brother was in my office this last week, and he's suffering. From an earthly perspective, he has no certainty of what the future holds. But he said this to me. He said, you know, until I'm done with the work God has for me, I'm immortal. And that's actually a quote from Henry Martin, early 19th century missionary to India and Persia. It's from a journal entry he made in January of 1812. Listen to these words. To all appearance, he wrote, the present year will be more perilous than any I've seen. If I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be less important. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Living in light of our inheritance frees us from fear and it motivates us to take radical risks for Jesus because everything is gain and we have very little to lose. Number four, the last and most obvious one is that living in light of our inheritance makes us a thankful people. The reason Paul and Timothy identified giving thanks as a mark of the life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord is because of what has happened, the great transaction that happened because the Father made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He did that by rescuing us from slavery to sin and the powers of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of Christ who purchased our freedom by his blood. That is cause for thanksgiving. As we meditate on the cross and in remembrance of it, as we enjoy the cup in the bread of the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. Brothers and sisters, we have much to be thankful for to the Father. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Let us live then in light of this blood-bought freedom and this glorious inheritance. Our portion is an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, new heaven and a new earth 
It is salvation, eternal life, the kingdom of God. It is glory. It is all the promises. And yes, it is the Lord himself. He is our inheritance. Let me pray for you. Father, we want to not just merely understand our inheritance. Father, we want to embrace it with our hearts. Father, we want it to impact the way that we live. We want it to lead to thankfulness and radical risk-taking for you. And, and Father, we, we want you to do that deep work in our heart as we meditate on this glorious inheritance of ours. So, Father, I ask that you would fill us, fill each one of us here at Living Water Church with the knowledge of your will, and may it be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, we want to walk in a manner that is worthy of your Son and fully pleasing to him. We want to bear fruit in every good work. We want to increase in the knowledge of you. And Father, we want to be strengthened by the power that you provide. And Father, we want to overflow with thanksgiving because of the glorious work that was accomplished by your son on the cross. Father, do that work in our hearts today. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.